and out of respect for you, I think we should get started. So, uh, um, Ebert, since you're the last to join, why don't you start? Put on your damn performance. Here we go. Okay, I'm going to do a screen share then. Or unless you, I mean, is that okay? Absolutely. You go ahead. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll okay. play Andrews here. We'll co-moderate. Co Love you, fine. Let's see here. I'm going to go there. And then I'm going to do this and hope this shit works. Which I never know if it is. Okay. Well, let's go up here. Okay. This is a very in-process uh, theory I'm developing on uh, excess and absence. And uh, I'm calling this presentation the excessive mind, awe and absence. Uh, you'll hear some aspects of predictive mind and some of the work of uh, Keltner and Haidt on uh, awe and um, some Piaget, some Hegel. And uh, the rest is um, the cobblings of myself. Um, okay, so what is awe? Uh, Keltner and Haidt propose that awe experiences have two core features, perceived vastness and a need for accommodation. Accommodation is when you have to reconfigure the mental schemas in your mind in order to make it make sort of sense. The success of one's attempts at accommodation may partially explain why awe um, can be both terrifying when one fails to understand and enlightening when one succeeds. Uh, the need for accommodation, uh, that is experiences which require schematization or adjustments to a mental schema, experiences that defy our methods of categorization. So we may think of our experience as intercategorical monsters, which is a little nod to Verveke, uh, to borrow a phrase from, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm narrating when I don't have to, I actually wrote it in there. Haidt and Keltner describe it as a challenge to or negation of mental structures when they fail to make sense of an experience of something vast. Now, let's see if I can, there we go. Uh, so, so why, why would we even have awe? Uh, they propose, Keltner and Haidt, that uh, it may have ensured social hierarchies, so inciting reverence, devotion, and the inclination to subordinate one's interests and goals in deference to the powerful leaders. So people feel like, you know, some people, especially in Eastern cultures, report that they feel awe in the presence of someone great or something like that. And the idea that they have is that that, sense of awe provided a sense of cohesion around a given sort of uh, strongman. Um, there's another proposal by uh, Chirico and Yadin, which is a nature first view, which suggests that awe evolved as a signal uh, to signal a safe environment for hunter gatherers, as in like, wow, what an amazing place, we'll be safe here. Um, these conditions they say are most often fulfilled by elevated locations with a sweeping view of the surrounding area. Uh, now, I, I just find that sort of like a ridiculous proposal. Um, I propose a third option, which is a psychoevolutionary development of abstractions of power, because I think that abstractions of power is a rather important uh, coherent in humanity. From the ability to cultivate, cultivate belief in God to our, um, I wrote this right before this thing, uh, I call this sacred awe and propose a sort of seed of God moment uh, as the hidden foundation of religion. The ability to cultivate abstractions of power is a fundamental component of human social coherence at abstract scales far beyond Dunbar's cap. 
So our ability to sort of expand ourselves in abstract groupings beyond Dunbar's cap, I would attribute potentially uh, to our capacity for awe, uh, abstractions of power, beliefs in abstractions. Uh, I may be so bold as to propose that this function is the seed of religion and abstract allegiance and one of the core evolutionary harmonization moments differentiating animal and human. Um, so Piaget has this notion that we're born with like a, a minimum viable schema. Those are my terms, but like a, we're born with some schema that allows us to make sense of the world. And what I'm suggesting here is that that schema is not localized to a given environment, nor minimized to a few distinct features, but is a reflection of the universe itself from the perspective of the limited interior. So it is a mapping of indeterminacy, a self-contained imminence reflecting the imminence of exteriority. Um, and as we'll see as I go, this is only possible through the limitations which bound the subject from the exterior. Um, so. I'm going to keep going because I'm going to I'm sensing that I'm all, already running late on time. So I'm going to keep going here. There's some interesting aspects to this that we'll get into. All right. So we're born and we have this interiority, right? We have no sense of any external world. So the world as self, the assimilated interior. Now, we're born and there is a split that occurs between interiority and exteriority. That very split determines the limit of self. So you can think of this sort of zigzag line here that I played around with as the skin of the child, uh, the limitations that define interiority, but the skin of the mind, really, interiority and exteriority. This, as Freud notes, is the moment that drive occurs. This is the trauma of birth. Now, it is also the eruption of difference. So you have exteriority as the equilibrium of unassimilated exterior, and you have interiority as this equilibrium of assimilated interior. And in between, you have this rupture, this trauma, this birth, this limit. That word limit is going to come back and back and back. But this is also representative of a sameness, because that exteriority is defined by its indeterminacy when taken at once. And the inter interiority is defined likewise by an indeterminacy. And so we'll eventually see that there is an isomorphism between interior and exterior because of the very limit that separates interior from exterior and can end up putting us in a reflective equilibrium. So a reflective equilibrium is one in which the subjective interiority is experienced as isomorphic to the overwhelming indeterminacy of a total exteriority. And I'll show you how that works in my view. Um, real quickly, I wanna just go to Hegel real quick. Um, this notion of a saturated interior, which becomes indeterminate and isomorphic to, as Hegel says, being, is sublation. And I, I like explaining sublation uh, by using the, uh, the, the metaphor of jam. Uh, sublation comes from alphabung, which has a double meaning to annihilate and to preserve right? So if we think about strawberries, right, and they have relation to one another, one strawberry, another strawberry, then we smash them up and we destroy their relation by mingling them in such density that they are now infinitely related, as Hegel would say, an infinite self-relation. And through that process, we annihilate them and preserve them. And I like it because, of course, jam is also called preserves. Um, 
So I basically just explained what that quote is about to say, but Hegel basically ends up saying the same thing. Um, and I'll move on because I want to keep this going. Okay, so again, one more Hegelian concept before we split. Actually, there'll be one more after this. A equals B equals C. Hegel wants us to think of the isomorphisms of sublation. Never mind this. This is going to be confusing. I'll just explain it. <laughs> it's not that A is going to become B, or that A is kind of like B, or that A is similar to B, or anything like that. It's that A is so much itself. A is so saturated within itself as itself that it is isomorphic to B, which is so saturated in itself as itself. And the isomorphism is precisely that self-saturated interior which is indeterminate, and that creates the isomorphism, very similar to the real number line. If you take any slice of the real number line, you'll see that that tiny slice of the real number line is isomorphic to the entire uh, reals. Any slice of the reals has the same uh, infinite complete density, uh, complete density, as they call it in mathematics, to any other portion of the reals. So that's the isomorphism we're talking about here. Um, and I think I'll just keep going. This is all very interesting stuff about Hegel, but I'll continue. Um, I do want to present this. Okay, so Hegel says uh, regarding sublation and the process of it, we have the alternating determination of repulsion and attraction in which they collapse into equilibrium. And this is going to uh, form the basis of the rest of the talk. So to illustrate this collapse into equilibrium, uh, you can imagine this the, the a sine wave, the function sine one over X. You do not need to know math to, to know what this is. All of us have seen these sort of like uh, um, collapsing sine wave functions that are at increasing velocity. So right here, you can see the roots and they're getting closer and closer. Here's like a big, I don't know if you can see my marker, but here's a big, uh, on the left, you have sort of the wide view. And over here, you have the zoomed in view. And the frequency of these oscillations gets closer and closer. The relation between each oscillation is closer and closer until the relation collapses around zero. And upon the collapse, it forms, a, it, it is indeterminate. And in math, they call it uh, undefined. But at that point, it forms a continuum, uh, a singularity. And that's what we'll be taking a look at with regard to awe. Where do I, how do I, okay. Okay, so I had this video made and this describes the, uh, the aforementioned um, process. And this is, you'll hear musical, uh, you'll hear beats that will eventually sublate one after the other. Uh, into a new equilibrium. What I want you to notice most of all, we start off with a flat line, which we perceive as non-dynamic or death. And around that equilibrium, a new dynamism begins. And then that dynamism, by increasing its frequency and its relation to itself and increasing its intensity and getting toward, as Hegel puts it, infinite self-relation, it will form its own new equilibrium. And you'll see these equilibriums one after the other unfold. Here we go. Now we can imagine it now just minimizing and becoming an equilibrium. Now it's a new dynamism occurring.
the relation condenses and we end up with another equilibrium, non-dynamical. Now we can imagine that becoming the ground of being again, the unconscious, the non-dynamical state, and another. We can think of this as knowledge acquisition. We can think of this as apprehending something which doesn't make sense to us, finding accommodation, a new schema, learning to ride a bike, and suddenly it becomes second nature. It retreats into the unconscious and goes into subjective equilibrium. Okay, so you get the point. All right, I'll move on. Here is a video that may take a moment. I think it's about four minutes, but uh, I had this made as well for this. Um, and we'll see the process of awe uh, as equilibration. So we have a person over here and we have the conscious frame uh, in the center here. We can think of it as an intentional frame, active inference frame for predictive error minimization. And we have the subject on the right. Now the subject is going to, at some point, apprehend an object that will appear on the left. And when it does, this is going to present some kind of confrontation with otherness. This is the exteriority. So exteriority confronts interiority. And um, this is the moment of drive, again, the exterior acquisition by interior extension. I should explain that for a moment. The interior, the, the, the solution that the interior presents and that drive is responsible for is the extension of the interior subject to include, to suddenly be inclusive of otherness. So somehow this problem of exteriority, which can be described in some ways as a desire to return to the womb, exteriority or otherness is acquired into subjectivity vis-a-vis uh, -vis the following process by what, what I call sort of interior extension. So you have this otherness which appears in the conscious frame as object. Now it's still otherness and it's the focus of our, of our conscious frame. Now we have to find accommodation for it and uh, develop a schema for it. So here comes the process of subjectivization or schematization. And you can think of these as moments of the object repeating itself within the mind. As soon as, I want to play that back, as soon as that process has been completed, the object disappears from the conscious frame and otherness is no longer otherness. Watch it again. Okay. Now at that moment, which I'll bring back here. Yeah, at this moment, the subject now is uh, uh, thinking of this thing as uh, automatic. There is no longer a conscious frame. They can interact with the, with the object, uh, but they're interacting with it unconsciously. It's no longer a part of the conscious frame. The subject has reached a state of excess vis-a-vis uh, -vis the process, uh, and the conscious frame has been absented and the object now is no longer an otherness, but a sameness. Through excess subjective, the subject absents the object into the indeterminacy of a saturated interiority. Though the object may remain, it is no longer an exterior item, and as such may be interacted with unconsciously and without attention. 
the equilibrated object becomes second nature, enjoying high predictive precision, and will not need to occupy the conscious frame again unless the object presents itself as newly different, a prediction error with high precision, at which point it would have to do the process over again. In this way, the subject acquires the world, the project of interior extension, which begins upon the trauma of the interior-exterior split of birth, may be thought of as the project of recreating the pure interiority of the pre-split state of the womb. This extension of interiority is, I propose, drive. Okay. So you have the subject again, and we'll just run through a few more of these so you get it. There's another otherness, right? Now, the subject already has this ground of being, which is red. That's the previous uh, equilibrium. Now it needs to create a new equilibrium. And in this way, again, the object disappears, clears the frame, and the object, which was otherness, is now sameness. And as you can see, the subject is beginning to develop layers of unconsciousness layers of automation, layers of schema, which it can rely on without attention and interact with the world without having to pay attention to it. And again, the self is, the uh, conscious frame is absented, the object is turned into a sameness. Again, one more time, anotherness, it enters the conscious frame as object, it undergoes subjectivization or relative schematization, gets to the point of excess upon the limit, transforms the conscious frame into absence and the object into sameness. As interiority equilibrates exteriority, it develops its unconscious informational ground. The more layers of equilibrated acquisition, the more rhizomatic complexity, informational potential, the unconscious is constituted by. As interiority equilibrates exteriority, it develops uh, a I already said that. Okay, I think it's over. All right, so I'm going to move on. This is a rude Instagram sketch I did of awe. So you have here the uh, subject, right? Differentiated by limit. And we have drive to exceed these limits, to uh, extend the interior through acquisition and acquire the exterior for the subjective interior. So we have this drive and it meets upon the limitations. And the limitations push back on it, act as a compressor, and drive goes momentarily absent within its own excess. And in this moment, we experience ourselves as self-imminent in isomorphic relation to the totality of the exterior world. And that is the moment of, well, meditation, uh, meditative awe, uh, what have you, apophatic self-imminence. All right such as the paradox of the infinite and the finite. Now I'm going to read from just for a second. Uh, the infinite interior that produces the finite exterior and the finite exterior that facilitates the infinite interior, the surplus of interior drive, which against the limit pressurizes the interior mind into absence. Thus the limitation is transformed into compressor and the double negativity is positivity of the saturation of absence. We can think of these moments as the zone, uh, the ecstatic state, sexual climax, apophatic meditation, but it's also some of our more mundane uh, knowledge acquisition moments, right? Learning to ride a bicycle, it's in the conscious frame, conscious frame, conscious frame, 17th, 18th time trying to learn and then suddenly 
you know how to ride a bicycle and the focus of riding a bicycle goes uh, uh, reclines back into the unconscious and becomes second nature automatic. Um, uh, and I'm going to continue uh, moving along. Stop indulging myself here. What happened? Um, where is the rest of my talk? Um, oh, okay. Yeah, well then in that case, since that's the last slide, I will continue to read it off and then I'll stop. Um, these absences of excess are unconsciousness returned from absence to super salient excess. So what I mean by that is these absences which form the layers of the unconscious in the state of awe are returned from absence to super salient excess within the conscious frame. So the idea that when we're meditating, we're actually getting rid of things, in my view, is wrong. What we're actually doing, either, like for instance, if we are focusing on a given item, like we're focusing on breathing or we're focusing on an apple, and then we focus on the apple and, 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 and through temporal development of that focus, it consumes the conscious frame. And so what is actually happening is an absenting that is occurring via excess and via saturation of that, uh, that item. Likewise, if we just focus on the unconscious itself without an item, and we're in sort of what's called like open mind, uh, open monitoring meditation. What we're actually feeling and observing is not nothingness, but the nothingness of everything. It's when the entire indeterminacy of the unconscious fills the conscious frame. So it's when that saturation, that excess, that uh, everythingness of the nothingness of everything fills the conscious frame. So as opposed to a nothingness. A, uh, it's an excess of absence. So anyway, it's here from this subject that the subject is ruptured. The subject exceeds themselves once again, and they who exceed themselves stun themselves. Here, I'm going to try and uh, draw you up here uh, and render us terribly odd. So you can, as, you, you can be a permissionary to me and become odd yourself, fill me with awe myself, and so on. Confronted with the unconscious itself, so if I'm confronted with your unconscious as your conscious frame, as your uh, state of being for just a moment, the infinite schizographic interior, breathing beyond the finite cell, blaring thrush of vibe, gunning blind, an automatic drive of self-confrontation, we are suddenly made aware of our own self-othering. A dread of reunion can flood us. We want to immolate, but we fear ourselves. We fear our loss of fear. There is a fear, in other words, of, of awe. There is a fear of entering the, uh, the, 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 the sacred. Um, it is within this absence from excess, and this is why there's the fear. It's within the absence from excess that the non-linearity of the child state, Nietzsche's child state, Christ's child state, whatever you want, reigns, and that the rhizomatic operation of combinatorial potential opens up because we are experiencing our interior as indeterminate. This combinatorial potential is the natural schizophrenia of the interior. This is the profound relationality of substance that within every that within the very limits that mark difference, sameness inscribes itself. Uh, remember, the path to awe is awful, and the moment itself a monstrosity upon meaning, a monstrosity upon meaning, moving as death upon identity. And with that, I thank you, and I turn it over. Where am I?
Andrew. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I, you just joined when Ebert got started. So why don't you take over the moderation from now on? Okay, my my apologies to everyone um, for being late here. Um, and uh, and I'm very, very sorry because I love all you guys. And, and this is the Intellectual Deep Web, which are a pretty unmoderatable bunch in general. So, so uh, a bunch of stray cats, basically. Um, I thought maybe I, the, how I wanted to uh, introduce the group, and, and I'm doing this a little bit late, uh, is, is to just quote, um, quote Lehman Pascal's definition of the IDW, which is the intellectual deep web, which is the best I've seen here. So, uh, so Lehman says, the intellectual deep web is a name that parodies and transcends the notorious intellectual dark web. It's a contingent of high-powered neo-philosophers lurking at the edges of the so-called emerge field. They are voracious, combative, obscenely well-read, performative, enticing, off-putting, fast and deeply attuned to the leading edges of techno-social, occult, spiritual, psychoanalytic, and cultural unfoldment. Their vision of upgrade in a time between worlds is a dark renaissance. Okay, so who am I introducing now? Um, uh, uh, who's, who's next in our... Uh, I think I can go unless Fanny has an idea that connects directly with Everton. Alex, okay, so yeah, so Fanny and anyway. I work together, so we're pretty well, familiar. I imagine you've that. you've introduced Ebert a little bit and said who he is. Uh, Ebert is a rock star and an amazing philosopher and a very very cool guy. Um, he's he's uh, I, I I he's he writes titillating words. Listen, guys, uh, you can Google any one of us. You don't have to. Make yeah, Google them. Okay, so I won't. I won't. We only have two hours, Andrew. This I is the type of deep web. We have to rush there on. There you go. Okay. Okay. So Alexander Bard is my <laughs> good friend. Uh, he's a radical dude. Everybody knows him here, most likely. So so what are you going to talk about, Alexander? Well, I do write books. Ebert and Fanny will write books eventually. They're not there yet, but they're going to write tons of books eventually. But I'm also older than they are. So I've just written my sixth book. It's coming out later this year. It's called Pros and Event. It's been talked about a lot, but it's taken us the last five years to write and about 25 years of research to, to basically put it together. I'm going to touch some of it here today. Okay, this started Greg Henriquez writing a really, really great book. It's a really great book on an impossible topic called psychology. Um, psychology happens to be an American discipline originally. I think we all credit William James, the great pragmatist from the 19th century to have invented the modern version of psychology. But it goes back to Aristotle and the idea that you can do logos of the psyche. So you, you could do science of the human soul, <laughs> which is the most preposterous idea ever. Psychology in itself is an impossibility. And, and we can go through that by also calling it the tragedy of psychology. But I actually love the term psychology, but I hate how it's been used over the last, say, 100 years. And this is what Greg and I agree with each other completely. Now, Greg has written this book and is all over the place this weekend at the conference anyway. So Greg invited me, Everton Funny, here with Andrew, to share some other ideas that are popping up at the Intellectual Deep Web and see if any of these ideas can relate to what he's interested in, which is to sort of nail psychology, reform psychology, and get it right. And in those discussions, only brief discussions, we haven't really synchronized anything here today. This is probably the most anarchic of all the sessions this weekend. But uh, I'd, I suggested that if Ebert does his presentation all here, he just did wonderfully, um, starting from Hegel, then I could talk about the difference between psychology and psychoanalysis. And this touches something that Andrew Sweeney and I have been working on a lot over the last few years in our podcast and certainly in, in, in the intellectual deep web discussions. Um, 
the problem with psychology, psychology is presumed to be science. And as a science, it was instantly kidnapped in the 19th century by the establishment. And ever since then, we have trained psychologists to take us all out of our misery and put pills and shit and stuff into us or, or give us some fucking therapy and throw us back into the sort of social relations we have already. So there can be nothing wrong with the world. There can only be something wrong with you. And this being the basic premise of psychology. Now, in response to that, we had Sigmund Freud, later Jacques Lacan, women like Julia Kristeva, Lenka Zupantic, uh, the amazing psychoanalysts that came along starting in Europe in the 20th century. And I would say psychoanalysis is then a response to the world of psychology. The difference is that while psychology is trying to be science, importantly, psychoanalysis is an art. That's an enormous difference. Psychoanalysis doesn't claim that this is the truth and this is how things work. And if I would then give a critique here to Ebert's presentation, being an American as he is, is that after I see the presentation, while well, I agree with 99% of it, it's certainly very Hegelian, I would say, but it's not me. <laughs> it's not my subjectivity. <laughs> it's not my worldview. It's not my world. So the problem is that it requires enormous simplification to nail something down in the way Ebert just did. Uh, doesn't mean he's wrong. It just means they require simplification. It's precisely when Ebert says, so when you do meditation, and he goes off in one simple meditation technique, and then bases his entire interpretation of meditation on the one technique, which he has to in his presentation. But we have to understand here, though, that there are thousands of different ways to do meditation. We have a thousand different ways of understanding what the word meditation means. Personally, I prefer contemplation because I like to be an active person, what I do, but it's another one. So psychoanalysis is an art. It doesn't try to nail a truth. It doesn't try to go for a logos. It stays with us human beings as pathical and as pathical emotional beings with three different brains. This is very psychological, with three different types of brains. It opens us up to different types of possibilities all the time. So, you know, it's like, you will constantly be surprised with yourself if you have some kind of a subject that is alive. Libido is fundamentally being surprised with yourself. And in this sense, awkward example or ecstasy could be studied. We could also study trauma. We could also discover that traumatology and eventology, the study of the ecstasy and the study of the trauma are parallel worlds. Essentially, when you talk to an abuser or what they want to get them out of abuse during therapy, you will either have to take them out of a trauma that they enjoy too much Please note here, a psychologist would never phrase it that way. A psychologist would never tell you you enjoy your trauma, would he? No, but a psychoanalyst would instantly. You enjoy your trauma too much. The only way to get out of it, get out of your self-abusive behavior, is basically that we take you out of the trauma to some kind of a sober state on the Monday where a cup of coffee is all you need and you go to work. The same thing is with the ecstatic experience. The ecstatic experience becomes abusive when you don't understand. You can't stay in it. If you stay inside the ecstatic experience, you go mad. No, you have to come down from your trip. You have to get out of it. You have to be sober tomorrow if you're drunk today. And that's exactly how we treat abuse, for example. Now, this is perfect example of psychoanalysis by being able to twist things back and forth and back and forth constantly can be much more fruitful and creative to work with than to stay with psychology itself. I personally defend both positions. I think they should be used in coordination. And I'm also a great fan of psychiatry, believe it or not. If you use all three, you can then approach human beings in all different states that they may have. But I would highly recommend the psychoanalysis being tantric is something you shouldn't do when you're not healthy. 
If psychology treats you when you're not healthy, if psychiatry treats you when you're not healthy, we certainly have to start from the point of some sound health when you start doing psychoanalysis. So what Andrew and I done in our work is that we made a difference here taking from Eastern culture, which is the difference between Tantra and Sutra, which has been desperately lacking Western culture. So what does it mean? Sutra is a mythical truth that has a subjective to keep people together in a society, to make you love your children, to make you go to work, to, to make everything work, to make you stay out of warfare and, 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 and lynch mobbing and all the kinds of nasty human practices if you can. The Sutra is allowed to preach anything at once as long as it deals people together in a society. So it's a mythical truth, but it's also foundational. We cannot have a society at all. We cannot have a civilization unless we have a sutra first. So always the sutra first. Now, next though, instead of us in Western culture, especially in Christian, Christianity and Islam, declare that anything is tantric is a sin, maybe we should just learn to live with the fact that sin exists. It doesn't have to be sin at all. It should just be only permitted under certain circumstances by teachers or leaders or guides, or whatever, who guide you through it. And we've discussed this at length, for example, with Blaine Pascal and came to the conclusion that three Western tantras that would make sense to people today would be sex, drugs, and psychoanalysis. And here's the point. Psychotherapy is sutric. Psychotherapy is anything we do with you that makes you health again, gets you back to life and, and gets you back to go to work, whatever, you know, get you out of your suicidal mode or whatever. Psychoanalysis, though, is what you start doing when you are healthy already, but you're just so damn curious about how life operates. So you get into a guy like Ebert and his mind, and you go into his concept of awe, and you start thinking, is this how I operate? Actually, this is pretty much how my subjectivity operates. Okay, is there a twist to it? Yeah, maybe it could go both ways. You know, your subjectivity could be a byproduct of, of the objective world rather than the way around. Doesn't make that much of a difference. It's deeply psychoanalytical. Starts with Hegel, goes on to Freud, and then on to Lacan and Kristeva. And we have this whole wonderful field of understanding the human psyche in all its variety. So what I wanted to do before I go to funny is then to bring us back to the three different brains of psychoanalysis. Again, something psychology would never discuss. Um, the three brains in psychoanalysis are the emotional brain, the rational brain, and the mimetic brain. Human beings being flock animals, spend an awful lot of time on the mimetic brain. If you study, for example, René Girard, you will discover how important this really is. And here's also what's not part of Ebert's analysis, and that's when you move from drive to desire, and desire is mimicked. What other people desire is what you will tend to desire as well. And we create enormous rivalry in the society and all kinds of social problems. You know, but also keep society together. Uh, mimetic means it is slightly more feminine meaning that in our studies, we do data anthropology, heterosexual women and gay men tend to have a large mimetic brain than other human beings do. Whereas the other two brains, interestingly, the rational and emotional brains tend to be slightly larger in heterosexual men and lesbian women. Funny, isn't it, right? We, 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 we usually perceive that heterosexual women play drama all the time and are very emotional. No, they're not. The reason why they can play so much with their emotions is precisely because they're stronger than men are. They have stronger psyches, they focus more on the mimetic brain and they're less emotional than men are. And when women get really tired of men sitting in therapy in their late 30s or something like that, they always say, oh God, my husband is so fucking emotional. I'm not so emotional, I just play on it. I just play around with it. That's my strength, right? So I think it's interesting before we open up the floor for Fanny, see where she moves next, is that the first difference I would say here compared to ever to present a particular as a universal idea of subjectivity. The first difference I'd be interested in exploring is the difference between the two genders. 
the main difference. I'm totally pro-LGBT and all that. Actually, gay men are similar to straight women, which is exactly the point of being gay man. You're really brilliant as a go-between between the two heterosexualities. The same thing with lesbian women. Give them their fucking guns, get out there in the wilderness, and they shoot more bear in Alaska than any straight guy ever would. They're wonderful, precisely because they can more rationalize their emotional brain and, 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 the, and the rational brain, but they use both intensely. And, and I find this incredibly interesting to see if we can start playing around with ever presented before. And maybe they move into Fanny and see where Fanny catches up here and see if she would like to play around a little bit with the gender. So thank you, Alexandra. Is, are you, is that's the entirety of your presentation? No, no, I, I, I'm glad to come back later. So I, I, I finish it off after less than 50 minutes so we can move the floor over to Fanny and then move back and forth. Okay, wonderful, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about, you were talking about psychoanalysis as being a form of Tantra. And the way I can relate to that is just the incredible creativity of the Tantric traditions. You know, in uh, the Vajrayana, there's 83,000 different sadhanas. So that is like the same thing as saying, you know, it's not just one technique, it's not a meditation app, you know, in the Sam Harris kind of way, the way that people today sort of kind of think of mindfulness. It's a, it's it's an explosive creative uh, tradition, the tantric tradition. Yeah, so. I, I would add that we should note that Sigmund Freud is a Jew. A Christian yeah, I, would never have come up with the art of psychoanalysis, would never have happened. Well, I'm working with- starting point, yeah. We can go Mark. back to that later. Maybe we'll uh, yeah, okay. I'll introduce Fanny. I just want to say that yes, tantric uh, Hebrewism is is another interesting subject as well. Okay, Fanny. Hello. Uh, we've had I've had Fanny, you know, on our our parallax um, on our parallax platform. Uh, she is uh, she is a great communicator, um, and uh, she says she uh, creates a space where you can sink into a powerful feminine perspective on creating and collaborating um her sort of thing is really you know female leaders aliveness initiatives anyway i won't i won't go on i won't give a long introduction but but she really blew away our, our group and she came into our men's group actually uh which was created an interesting uh dynamic so anyway fanny um are you are you do you want to uh just jump in here i'll jump in thanks andrew um yeah, Alexander, so like to kind of um, take off where you're, I kind of prepared like this uh, more kind of like a presentation. So I'll, I'll go through the thing and then and then you can comment on it and kind of continue to weave into your things because it's definitely interrelated. So what I wanted to share with you guys is um, kind of uh, go deeper into uh, my view on the feminine and the masculine and specifically look at um, how their their journey towards adulthood and why and like how I think they're quite different and what implications I think that um, can have on contemporary society and like why that is important um, for these times now. Uh, so I love that what you were talking about, Alexander, about kind of uh, it being an art. Uh, and I think what I'm going to present is maybe two quite different lenses of uh, seeing the world, uh, uh, both being both being true but being kind of different arts uh, and how it creates a lot of confusion when we're not clear on kind of what lens we're looking through. Um, so just to um, kind of share a little bit how I got into this, uh, I've been into decentralized organizing and kind of what's happening in the world as internet is coming, the new internet age. 
um, mostly through business, but also through politics, which um, was I first met Alexander, but also through the Burning Man community. And I was introduced to the intellectual deep web. And for me, um, about five years ago, I had quite deep like tantric awakening um, through Louis Alcien's um, leadership spiritual path called Awakening Feminine Leadership. And before I had uh, kind of myself uh, uh, awakened this, this feminine um, aspect, uh, energy, unleashed this, this feminine side of myself, I really didn't feel drawn to looking at the categories feminine, masculine. Um, I think this was uh, a lot to do with that I saw the feminine as weaker than the masculine. I'm, I'm an engineer, I've been in business, I've been around men a lot. Um, and I had like taken in this notion that uh, we, you know, we have this shallow polarity of the masculine where we talk about masculine and feminine, where we talk about that they're in polarity with each other. So that the feminine is this uh, active force and, uh, or the masculine is this active force and the feminine is the, is the receiving passive. So like the masculine is the um, yang and the feminine is the yin. And like, that's, that's <laughs> never really uh, appealed to me and who I am. Um, but when I, uh, so when I started embodying this, this, this version or this notion of feminine leadership that I had not um, understood existed basically before it had a huge impact on me as a woman, um, it, it really fundamentally shifted how I am in the world and how I see the world. It, um, I, was, I was the chief marketing officer of one of Sweden's largest e-commerces and it had a profound impact on the men around me in the organization, on my team, um, and also kind of witnessing the other women who are also uh, on this path of awakening, this, this, um, this uh, feminine um, it made me start to see like patterns between the masculine and the feminine um, in my own experience witnessing others, but then also um, kind of applying the um, philosophy, um, our different philosophical frameworks and seeing I was seeing kind of um, a polarity map uh, that to me uh, gives a lot deeper explanation of the feminine and the masculine and, and how they um, collaborate or what roles they kind of play. So starting with the masculine, um, I, I realized that like there is this active polarity of the masculine that I call the creating masculine. That is this passionate, driven, uh, executing uh, masculine. But then there's also a strong polarity within the masculine that I call the holding masculine, which I would say is like the grounded, present, um, uh, kind of like a mountain or a tree, just like grounded, um, creating direction. And both are very different in energy, but very masculine. And likewise for the feminine, like, yes, there is this yin feminine, which would be the um, kind of feminine that is um, passive, listening, nurturing, keeping together. But that's only half of this of the feminine cycle. And the feminine is deeply cyclical. And the other half is the um, is the what I call the creating feminine, which is like the life force. It's the witch, it's the Kali, it's the seductress, it's the sexual feminine. And the feminine is deeply cyclical and the creating feminine and the holding feminine cannot exist. Like the, they're not in polarity because they can't exist with you, without each other. It's kind of the, the holding feminine that, that allows us to go down into the void um, uh, of the creating feminine. It's creating feminine that, that creates the life force that kind of 
uh, and when you're more and more filled up with this energy with life force you become the holding feminine so it's this cycle um that that women flow through um and um this this creating feminine um was is is very um kind of shut down uh, in our society and before i uh, had like an embodied uh, awakening of it through this through this path um i i didn't know it exists like i hadn't heard that there was that kind of aspect uh, of the feminine of course i've had glimpses of it but just seeing that as um uh, as, a, as a core part of the feminine um, and I just want to share some, like I interviewed some of the other women like on this path and I just want to share like some of the things they share about what it feels like being in this state, um, just for you to get a flavor of it because it's very hard to, to kind of um, explain rationally. Um, so one woman says, I began to experience that I would spontaneously come in contact with my sexual energy. I felt an enormous gratitude and wonder. I felt like I'd peeled off so many layers that I had come closer to my inner self, that there was less between me and my power. And another woman shares, the time when I'm really connected to my feminine and my vagina, I'm sort of glowing with this power that makes me suddenly able to explain what it is that I feel, want, and see from this very grounded, centered space that is welcoming and inviting. I can set boundaries and not in this reactive, blamey kind of way or in a tight, close kind of way, but in a way that is powerful and received. It feels like I'm shining like a sun and that I see my sunlight shining, landing on others. I feel so alive that everything is possible and that I can create. And I share this, I put extra time on this just because we have so much projections on the feminine and it's really, uh, yeah, it's really something else, uh, this, this creating feminine. Um, I'll share my screen. Um, yeah, and um, so, uh, what what I what I then was seeing um, when I was stepping into this this feminine energy, it was calling men to show up in a completely different way as well. And I started to realize that, like in a creative process, um, how it kind of flows is that it starts in the creating feminine, kind of sourcing the life force. That's kind of the energy. That's the um, that the creative energy. And when she is met by this grounded holding masculine, it's kind of the, the Shiva and the Shakti. And when they're met, then direction is created. And it's a direction that is in service of what wants to come alive. And with this direction, this creating masculine can take this and go into execution and actually build it. And during the manifestation phase, the holding feminine kind of keeps, keeps, the, keeps everything together. And... Um, uh, so it's kind of the unification and also make sure that when it's over that we go back um, to the cycle. And um, so from a, from a feminine lens, it would flow from it starts in the creating feminine, direction is creating in the holding masculine, execute, uh, it's executed upon the holding masculine, the holding feminine, make sure that we go back. But so this would be a feminine lens on the creation and looking from the masculine, it rather starts in the holding masculine. So you start getting grounded. And from this grounded place, you can receive the inspiration from the creating feminine. You can go up into the holding feminine and check, is this, is this inspiration that I've received really what is serving the world? And if it is, then you go into the creating masculine and execute. So it's almost like polar opposite um, views on, on the creative process. And both are equally true, kind of like the particle and the wave. But depending on which lens you're using, um, you'll see different things. 
And what I when I then saw this, um, saw this so clearly that this is kind of, you know, how all creative processes work when there's a virtuous creative process, creating something authentic and constructive and life affirming. I also realized that in and I have especially a business frame, what I often see happening is that we have you know, from the industrial paradigm, we have a lot of this creating masculine, like the business world and society in large is a lot about this executing energy. Um, and this is what often the excess of this creating masculine is often what is called toxic masculinity. And a lot of businesses and society and artists are saying, you know, okay, we need more of the feminine. But the only feminine that we have access to is this holding feminine. And it's not even an authentic holding feminine, because since this feminine, there's very few, we don't get, um, educated or guided how to access our power which is in the creating feminine this the holding feminine that exists is this kind of collapsed mothering figure that kind of just wants to subdue the the creating masculine so there's an enormous tension between this kind of collapsed mothering holding feminine and this toxic boyish creating masculine and i we see, you know we see that a lot in society you know it's the it's the extreme left with this uh, angry holding feminine that has been collapsed and it's the far right with this uh, excess uh, um, immature masculine energy. And what I really see um, is needed uh, in society is for more women to be stepping into this creating feminine for, and for more, which would then call back men into the holding masculine and more men in the holding masculine, which would create space for this um, creating feminine. So that, because uh, when this happens, when there's like a collaboration between the creating feminine and the holding masculine, then the um, creating masculine is free to kind of to create and, and unleash the power of the creating masculine, which is amazing, but do it in service of a direction that is serving what is authentically serving life. Um, and and this is, um, this is, you know, for, for men to truly step into this holding masculine is the most probably existential scary and courageous thing you can do as a man because it requires to completely um, let go of your kind of control and surrender kind of the void that is this creating feminine. Uh, and, and, and to dare to, uh, yeah, to dare to let go and listen in, but also to dare to take initiative because this creating feminine, you know, is chaotic and it's, it's, it's this life force and it's really difficult to decipher. So the holding masculine is this balance of both listening in, but also daring to take initiative uh, and to actually create something um, in the world or create direction in the world. And likewise for the creating feminine to really surrender into your power uh, to, 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 you know, really access this life force and um, and to allow yourself to be seen there by the holding masculine and trust that he's going to hold space for you is the equally intimidating journey kind of, of showing up uh, in the feminine. Um, so, so it's this, uh, yeah, this, I see like this, this fear, like not being mature in both the feminine and masculine is, is creating this, this toxic um, cycle here. And so then, uh, going into then, okay, so what does this look like for when it comes to the um, kind of developmental journey from going from child to adult from both uh, masculine or male lens and, and feminine lens. So the, um, 
the masculine lens is then this this um, classical notion of the hero's journey, right? It's like it's this masculine lens that we almost always talk about. So it starts in the holding feminine, the mother, and you um, need to you know go out. You're called out by the creating masculine to go out into the world, leave the nest, leave the womb, go out and meet the world. And then there's this rite of passage between the creating masculine and the holding masculine to you know slay the dragon and really meet your fears and really grow up and show up as a man. And this is this is like a deeply kind of you know it's, it's a very like sutric journey of like getting your shit together and you know it's it's Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules of Life and it's the Mankind Project of like you know get you know get your stand up and <laughs> I'm getting distracted by Alexander's exorcism but but yeah like be a man and when you when you are there when you when you've done this rite of passage through you know loving men uh, around you then you're ready to meet the tantric creating feminine, then you're ready to meet this life force, then you're ready to go down into the void and receive the calling of what is yours to do in life. And you can go out and, and, and do and, and do that and be the adult and be the, the fully grown masculine man serving uh, a serve, serving something, um, serving, you know, what, what wants to come to life. Um, so it's very like going, going from sutric to tantric for the male journey. And then when it then comes to women's journey of development, like I definitely have to do more research here, but like, I think there's so few stories and like all notions of like integral theory and adult development, like there's such a, from a, such a masculine lens. So now I'm gonna go deep into like, just speaking about hypothesis and when, what, I, what I've experienced as a woman and what feels to be true, because there's just so little written, it feels like on this, but so, um, one thing that I've read is that there's the heroine's journey. Um, so it's uh, the heroine's journey in this, um, I don't actually remember the author, but, but how she writes it is that it, it starts with the feminine, detach or the, the feminine detaching from the feminine, or the women detaching from the feminine and going out and doing the hero's journey. And then when she has, you know, slayed the dragon and got on her purpose and achieved the whole accomplishment, realizing like, was this it? Uh, and then, you know, going back to the feminine, and I can so subscribe that to myself, like I've been kick ass in the masculine, you know, I've been an engineer, I've been succeeding in the business world, and then I, you know, I was there, and I, I had all, you know, I, I had succeeded in masculine terms, and then I was like, is this life, like, wh what is this, and then I had this awakening into this, the feminine, and then my life started feeling full, um, for real, or, you know, connected. So, so I'm like, that feels a little bullshit. Like, is the, does that have to be the way that like women have to do kind of the men's journey first and then to realize, or is that just because our society is so deeply in the masculine and has been for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. So the only stories we have is of women who have gone through the masculine first and then, and so this is just an hypothesis. Like what if the true adultification journey of a woman is the exact opposite that that it starts as, as in the mother, but that the, meeting the world as a woman is is really going into your feminine power, to going into you know holding your sexuality, uh, being in your body, um, you know getting these tools of really really deeply uh, embodying this creating feminine and kind of the passive right rite of passage for women then rather is 
um, like when you're ready to meet the holding masculine to like to be supported to go from the tantric and kind of meet the order meet the world meet the direction meet the masculine energy and force without losing your tantric femininity like without losing your your creating feminine and that 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 is rather um the more um natural or, or true kind of journey um, um for women of then so embodying the creating feminine embodying the life force embodying your sexuality embodying your power as a woman and doing that sufficiently so that then you can meet this holding masculine and together create this direction and go out and create into the world and then go back and um i also want to say with that that like um of course i think the 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 masculine is more linear so the masculine has more of an arc and the feminine is more cyclical like this happens in cycles like there's many many cycles for a woman i think this cycle happens for every month like our menstruation cycle goes through this cycle so it, it is going to be different but i still think there's an interesting parallel that is almost uh, completely opposite and to make this point even like stronger um i've it's really you know i've been really questioning and i've been doing that for years but this notion of integral theory and the adult development path. So if you look at, for example, you know, spiral dynamics or these different colors, if you look at the lower levels of consciousness, according to spiral dynamics, as we talk about this red, it's this primal, egoistic, you know, it's, it's talk about the lowest levels, um, which makes sense from a masculine lens, like it's coming from here, it's quite primal and then growing up into the holding masculine, right? So it makes sense. But from a feminine lens, like this red or primal energy to me a lot explains this creating feminine. And to me, to be in contact with my sexuality, to be in contact with my body, with my like, that's that's when I've had my spiritual experiences, whether that is in, you know, tantric sexual experiences or at work being su supported by the holding masculine. That's when I've felt most enlightened. And when I've had access to my highest levels of consciousness, which completely just like, fucks over the whole integral um, development uh, worldview in, in, in many ways. So to, to kind of round off, what does that this mean for contemporary society? Like how, if, if the journey of the masculine, the feminine, the men and women are so different, like what does that mean for how we build society? And I think this is the huge clash that we're seeing in society where like women are like, we want this and men are like, we want this and there's just this huge tension. And um, so because of this, I don't know if I'm using these terms correctly, but it's kind of one really simple way is like that for women, it's like tantric first, then sutric, and for men, it's sutric first, then tantric. Um, and if you look at like, um, it's kind of like this, that the, the feminine in this kind of spiritual or maybe tantric realm, the feminine has the upper hand it's like the feminine is kind of the is connected to the life force and it's kind of the, the the masculine serving the feminine and in the more material realm like in the outer realm the masculine has the upper hand like the feminine is committed to to truth that is always changing and always shifting and the masculine is committed to creating the shared stories that can create the order that we can build society upon that actually can you manifest something in the outer world and both are super important and you know in the different realms there's different different upper hands or, or, or you know, people, the, the energy leading or, or how you should say. And previously, me and Alexander have been speaking about this, previously, um, 
uh, these like the spiritual and, and the material worlds were very separated. Uh, so like you would, you, you know, you would go to church and or you, your spiritual setting and then you would have your work and your outer setting and they would be quite separated. And right now, uh, as with the internet age, we're seeing like a merge of these worlds and we're seeing a lot of capitalist forces going in and exploiting the spiritual realm, whether that's, uh, you know, a company who has um, personal development as a part of like a too ingrained part of their journey. So it becomes like a sect where you're getting paid and receiving your spiritual advice from the same person, which can be complete, like very dangerous, or uh, or even, even a larger issue, you know, the, um, our, our, uh, the big, big corporation gathering all this data about us and, you know, it's creeping into our closest, most spiritual, most private rooms and exploiting that uh, to earn money. Uh, and it's really, really dangerous uh, um, uh, development. And you, we also have to see that like in the internet age, everything that is more order-based, material-based, AI and machines will be able to do better than humans. So what, what, what we will be able to compete with in the business world is the uh, is uh, things that come with like creating quality and meaning, like the algorithms that will win are the ones who are most meaningful, who provide the highest quality, not the quantity. And it's kind of in this realm that the um, meaning and quality comes from this tantric realm. It comes from this... Um, uh, collaboration between the creating feminine and the holding masculine. Um, so, I mean, the big question, you know, of this time is, you know, how do we create this attentionless society that kind of fuses these two worlds because it has to, because, you know, that's where we're moving. Um, but that does that in a resilient and constructive way. And, you know, I don't have all the answers. This is a huge question to, to kind of go into, but I like a big part is moving into like a more mature relationship between this creating feminine and the holding masculine. And what I then see, so, okay, so how will that work? How that works is that like, in the outer world, it is the masculine that has to create the, 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 the big structures. Uh, and the, the tantric, as Alexander said, can only be local, can only be within like protected realms and protected. And you know, this whole notion of trying to make the whole society tantric, of trying to make everything fluid, of trying to, you know, like it's, it, it, that's just not how life works. And it's not the why, like it's, it's, uh, it's really not something to be, uh, um, that we want. Uh, um, so, so what I see is like a strong presence of this holding masculine that is holding up safe havens for the creating feminine to create meaning and quality and, and, and connect us to this life. And I'm not saying that, you know, like from a feminist perspective, I'm not saying that women can't, you know, hold themselves, that they, you know, need men, but it's back to the notion that like, we have too many, we have, we have no women here, like we're all out in the masculine. So it's not that we can't be in the masculine, it's like, why should we? And it's, it's amazing to be in the creating feminine, like it's so nourishing for our bodies. Um, and we need this collaboration. Uh, so, um, yeah, and and this this um, yeah, mid lesson says that like this. Um, so so an example of this is you know like a DAO where you have a DAO that has clear holding masculine a membrane around it that is keeping the people out who shouldn't be there, so that within the DAO within this realm you can have a really more feminine meaning qualities. Um, fluid way of working that if that holding masculine frame is not there, if the membrane is not there, will be exploited upon from the outer world. Um, 
and that's you know that's just uh, how, how it is so basically what we need is like the holding masculine to to build these structures that are but that are in service of the feminine and what what is kind of the trust that is needed is that um the, the feminine has to trust that like, even though broad, broadly in society, the scalable structures will be better designed for the masculine. That's just, that's just how it's gonna be. Uh, but these structures are there for the feminine to locally kind of rule and thrive. And since that, that's how they're built, like at, you know, aggregating, it does become that these structures are in service of the feminine with this kind of dynamic. Um, Again, yeah. So, and and kind of maybe ending with this 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 um, old and wise and known quote of like, know the masculine and keep to the feminine. That's what I end with. Thank you. Thanks so much. That that is really, I think, the most important conversation that's out there, and I think you beautifully articulated it. Um, uh, I've always wondered why, in, you know, in in the, in the Western iconography, the feminine is always portrayed as the receiver of the soft or whatever. Whereas in tantric imagery, we have women with, you know, butcher's knives and, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, eating human skulls. And so there's this whole like softness to the feminine that that, that probably is a betrayal of the feminine in some sense. So, so, uh, so, so I'm really happy to hear you 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 uh, make that. Um, make that analysis, and I think I think it was very lucid. I hope we can talk about it again sometime in, in more detail. Um, I think it's wonderful. Uh, just cheer you on. Uh, and by the way, Joanna, there has been a great fan of yours all along. Joanna, you must join the intellectual deep web. You're so fucking sharp; it's unbelievable. So some of the commentaries in here are just gold today. Uh, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to pick it up here and then maybe pass it on to Ebert and see if we end up because I think there's a connection that I could probably explore here. Uh, we work with something called narratology. We're even saying that narratology deserves to be its own philosophical discipline. What we mean with that is that human beings have three different ways of approaching truth or telling stories about themselves. And we call these three stories logos, pathos, and mythos. There's a pathical narrative, the, 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 the direct narrative, yeah, like the, new, the news show, for example, or pornography or anything that's just anything that you don't want your children to see. It's a pathical narrative, essentially. The grown-up adult narrative, very tantric, is the pathical narrative. They will, of course, have the logical narrative. There's anything you can reduce to zeros and ones. Computers excel at it, mathematics, all of that. Science. Psychology tries to be a logos, although it's impossible because you cannot make a logos out of a soul, can you? That's exactly what we're interested in psychology today. The third one is the mythos. And what we provocatively do in our work is that we work with this triad because it creates a perfect asymmetry between the two genders. So what we're saying essentially is that in the inner circuit, probably in the inner circuit where women are, are most comfortable with the matriarchy, we call that, the, where the reproduction takes place, where survival takes place, you know, the, the inner circuit, is, is a world of mythos and, and means it values all stories told according to the mythical quality of them. What is then the case what the masculine brain has to contribute with because it operates in a world outside where you do protection and provision, the outer circuit, is that the masculine brain has to operate according to logos and pathos. This rhymes perfectly with the three brain model. Mimetic brain is perfectly suited for mythos. 
The mimetic brain is the brain you survive with in a social gathering. Women do much better in modern urban centers than men do. Men escape to the suburbs if they can, or preferably to the countryside to survive, because women do much better in socially dense environments. We know that for a fact. Mimetic brains survive better than women excel at that. So there's some mythos to that. The, this is, though, the interesting thing. A lot of you guys are familiar with Ian McGilchrist's work. Well, the, the only critique of Ian McGilchrist's work is that he's really talking about a masculine brain all the time. He's not talking about the feminine brain. We need, we need a feminine Ian McGilchrist. Maybe it's Fanny or somebody else, but somebody needs to do the, the same work for the feminine brain that he did for the masculine one. But it's not, again, it's not universal. My only critique with Ebert here that Ebert can come back to is that the model can't be universal for the simple reason that men and women are not the same. So men and women will experience awe differently. Men and women experience ex excess in trauma differently. M men and women have very different brains and the gay guys and the lesbians, they even make it even more evident because they usually take the opposite side here. So man then, as Camille Pagla would say, it's a struggle between the logos and the pathos. There's never any harmony and the balance in the, in the male soul. The male soul is a constant struggle between the two. That also means when it comes to leadership, that men have to appoint the smartest guy in the tribe, usually the priest, and give him the, you know, he's the authority on the logos. And, and then, you, then the strongest guy in the tribe, you know, the strongest of the hunters of the warriors would then be appointed to be the chief in the tribe. And, and he, he would then be the guy with the pathos. And this is how men have to do it. I'm not saying women cannot play around with all three narratives. Of course they can. I'm just saying that men are stuck in a logos pathos divide they can't get out of. Uh, women then live in a mythos. That's, that's exactly why sexual intercourse here, we go back to sexuality and Lacan here. That's exactly why men are attracted to the, to the vagina. They literally experience wholeness. You, you, you're split as a man. And finally, when you get your fucking penis inside the vagina, you, can, you experience some kind of wholeness. You know, that's the whole track. You go inside the cave again and you experience the wholeness you had with your mother before you realized you were a subject, to speak ever here. And that return is sexuality itself from the male point of view. For women, it is I generously give of my wholeness from a man who's split, which means that when women talk about men, they're attracted to say, yeah, he's so, he's so damn torn apart by his internal demons and eternal conflicts, and that's so damn sexy. Like, like, like there's a productive aspect. Women consider men to be productive in the sense that they're torn between logos and pathos. And I'm just saying that this narratology can explain both why we have a different shift in the brains. It can also explain why we have these different ways of telling stories. And here's the dark catch to the whole thing. The dark masculine undeniably is the unwarranted war. We go to war because men kill another tribe. We kill all the men of the other tribe. We kill the brothers and we kill the fathers, but we then rape the sisters and we adopt them to our own tribe. That's essentially warfare is the dark masculine is undeniably there. And dark masculine starts with either a priest without a chief, you call a pillar saint, or it starts with a boy pharaoh who is a chief without a priest. And that's exactly if you look back at history of the last 45,000 years, a civilization that has a, both a priest and a chief, like your own brain as a man, both brain halves are matched. When that happens, you have long periods of peace and prosperity. But when you either get rid of the pillar saints and the boy pharaoh shines forward, or like Adolf Hitler, for example, or when you just have the pillar saints sitting there on his pillars and like Manny, Manny Kiesem, he did grace, he's graced with, he's not embodied, he's graced with everything that's physical, right? When you have a pillar saint or a boy pharaoh, you've got the worst damn sects and cults and warfare in, in history. When we say about, the, we talk about the bad patriarchy, it's always either a pillar saint or a boy pharaoh we're talking about. Where the masculine leadership is both logos and pathos 
balanced with each other at the same time. You have great masculine leadership that I think is what Fani is looking forward to, to have that man who's holding. The holding space is a grown-up matched mix of the two. And here's the dark feminine. The dark feminine comes to the fact that the tragedy of being mythical all the time and telling mythical versions of reality, including your own sexuality, it's just a really strong, oomphy, sexy mythos, but still a mythos. The problem with that is when you put women in leadership position where they're not matched by a really strong masculine, is that they start guessing because they can't separate fact and fiction. And please watch out here. The dark feminine lies in the lynch mob. Rene Girard is a perfect match to read next time Michael Christopher because Rene Girard doesn't realize that he's really talking about the feminine, the dark feminine. Rene Girard's work is all about the dark feminine, meaning that when women cannot separate fact and fiction, a gossip they just heard in the streets can lead to a woman getting killed the same day, which exactly lynch mobbing it. So I think we eventually have to, we can go into history and the pro to see where do we go wrong? We go wrong with the dark feminine or the dark masculine come into place. The dark feminine comes forward, masculine disappears. The dark masculine goes forward, feminine disappears. And at least on the male side, being a man myself, I would say that we can match the priest and the chief and keep them both adult and responsible. We can have long periods of peace and prosperity. Now, let's see if this creates a sense of awe that may be slightly more gendered. And I pass the word over to him. Can I just super shortly say just this, um, uh, just want to like add some nuance to this the dark feminine and like not keeping the facts and the, uh, keeping facts and stories, um, not keeping them separate. Um, and I, I completely agree. I just want to like um, that I believe that the deeper layer of that is women not being connected to their power. And when they're not connected to their power, they feel they have to defend themselves. And then they go into this uh, uh, mob mentality of just merging everything, getting like, blah, and then just like, blah, and grading to this. So, uh, yeah, that it's, um, uh, I mean, to not like women don't just blend fun facts and stories just because they, like it, you know, it's, it's this. No, no, I, I kind of could just add that here's the enormous power of mythos. When you go and see a really good theater play, it speaks a lot more truth to you about the human condition than any logos or any mathematics could ever do. You go into the feminine, to go into theaters, to go into a cave and see a theatrical performance that really bears forward the human soul, which is exactly what psychology ironically is supposed to do. The theater does a lot better. And that is definitely the feminine. So yeah, and women know, women can tell when fact and fiction are separated and make sense. It's precisely when there's a master of the logos and a master of the pathos next to each other who respect and mutually admire each other. When there is mutual admiration between the priest, the chief and the tribe, Women know it, and they're the first to declare it. Yeah. Because only their mythos is the only way to unify the two and say, we've got a king and a priest who can lead, and here's the matriarch, who now hold them responsible for delivering all their promises. It's any power of constitution, like the US constitution is built in this tribe. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, often it sounds like, I think Alexander is cutting through all the political correctness of trying to discuss these things, which offends people, uh, but but it's not an insult of the feminine in any way. It's 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 actually a beautiful aspect of the feminine. That's what I would say. Um, so anyway, I want to hear I want to hear from Alex, and and maybe there were some critiques there, and maybe he wants to address them and and uh, and also just feedback on what he heard. Oh no, it's okay. A powerful online personality like Bard uh, has to simplify the pre presentations of others to to um, to the point of mischaracterization. 
Um, I, I've thought only a little bit <laughs> about uh, this, um, but uh, in the context of my presentation with regard to, uh, if you remember, you don't, Andrew, because you fucked up. <laughs> but if you remember, it starts with this split between interior and exterior, which Freud calls the the, the trauma that that begets drive. And um, and I've thought a little bit about this in terms of gender, and so I'll just relate that. Um, so just bear with me. But women have the chance to recuperate that trauma of the interior exterior split by realizing their capacity to host an infinite interior as sort of mothers. Um, there is there's something about that that feels like a recuperation that I'm, for instance, as a man, jealous of. Um, and I have no path to recuperation. And so I, as a man, and I think most men suffer from a terminally incomplete drive. And I think a lot of the Lacanian sort of petite object ah is, is more of a inherently masculine predicament um, where that linear drive to because there's no recuperation and I cannot become an infinite host of, of indeterminate interior, I look to the exterior and act to acquire exteriority uh, for myself. And so that can be in the, in the context of becoming very rich or acquiring a lot of property or fucking a lot of women or whatever the case is. Um, but there's this, this endless uh, linear uh, incompletion to the, to the male drive. Um, and one thing I want to relate to that is I've found that subside um, in, an, in the last year by embracing a meditation that is a feminine, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a feminine mother meditation thing that I do, uh, that I got led through. And uh, I basically, you know, she's like, is this, she's like, now imagine the, the, the divine feminine entering your your head and dripping down is this golden light. And I'm like, ah, ah, nah, it's getting stuck right here. I don't want it. I don't want that divine feminine, you know? And like a lot of male philosophers, it's like, look, like otherness is bullshit. There is no big other, right? That's something we always talk about. There is no big other. Like the desire to climb back in the womb is an erroneous, stupid, low level male drive. We have to get past that. But the neurotic compulsion is nevertheless uh, uh, re, uh, re-guided elsewhere towards success or the next project, 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 interminable projects. And what I found is by doing this divine feminine meditation, my sort of male drive, interminable male drive to acquire exteriority has subsided. And I'm beginning to enjoy my interiority as its own replete world. And, um, and I know that that's sort of like an ironic uh, statement because theoretically men like this idea of families talking about the holding feminine. It's like we want the woman to be in the kitchen and doing the thing and holding down the home and whatever the fuck. But really, I think men hate uh, 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 the feminine in a lot of ways and refuse it um, for excommunicating us and then not letting us back in. <laughs> and if we, And I think some of the big work for men is the reintegration of that feminine, especially the holding feminine, not a reintegration of it into our lives as object, but as subject, as part of us, as 
hosting us and us hosting it. And there's something there, some yin yang thing there that's happening to me that has changed my personal relationship to drive. Can I agree on that one ever? <laughs> Strongly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there you go. I, I just came back from Taiwan with Joachim, who I live with. We live in an urban monastery in Stockholm. So, um, and we, we did Buddhist temples in Taiwan. And it was just so striking that when I do Buddhist meditation, I go into, I'm a Zoroastrian myself, which is originally Persian religion. They're closely related, by the way. So it's exactly about comparing Zoroastrian meditation and Buddhist meditation that I can see the masculine and the feminine. And in this sense, Buddhism definitely on the feminine side. Because in feminism, you basically meditate all the way into being. Whereas in Zoroastrianism, you, you meditate, you contemplate all your way into activity, intense activity. Of course, in Hindu yoga, you separate these two. You got Kriya yoga or Shavi yoga, for example, which is much more on, on, on the Persian Zoroastrian side. Whereas Buddhist yoga is focused on, you know, that, that zero point down on this being. And in the, the beautiful words of this, Ahura Yasna, which is the, the celebration of being, is how Zoroastrians call Buddhists. This, for example, Andrew is a Buddhist here. That's we get along. So Varayana, by the way, mix of the two. It's a mix of the two. Whereas in Zoroastrianism, we worship Master Yasna, which ironically is what the word philosophy means. It means the love of wisdom. So that the celebration of wisdom, the celebration of the mind and the mind's capacity to do whatever the mind does. You can see how this leads on to Spinoza and Hegel and Western thinking later. And by being able to do both types of meditation, I can, as a man, both do what I prefer to call a masculine meditation and, and a much more feminine meditation. And of course, it isn't the Buddhist meditation that I feel embraced by something motherly. There's like an intense sense of matriarchy. There's an intense sense of I'm being held by the world as a subject in that meditation. I feel totally relaxed like I'm, I'm being held like I have this little boy being held. Like, that's what I get out of that meditation. Whereas in Zoroastrian meditation, just like get out there today, get out there and build the damn skyscraper. <laughs> and, and, and the two sister religions, they haven't recorded any warfare or conflicts between each other for the last 3000 years. It's quite, quite fascinating to see how these two religions blend precisely by one going in the more masculine. Of course, Zoroastrianism is the event. Whereas Buddhism deals properly with the process as process and stays dealing with the process. Buddhism doesn't escape from the process. It stays with the cyclical in the process. Whereas Orastianism firmly believes that the event can happen and the event can take history off in an entirely new direction. That's what we believe as Orastians. I have something to say about that, but are we out of time here? Perhaps Fanny, uh, yeah, I, just, I saw you opened your, your microphone, so maybe yeah, just, you want to say something quickly. Just echo, Ebert, like I really resonate with what you're saying. And I think precisely that for men to... Um, to kind of embody their own holding holding uh, feminine so that they can stop hating the mother is this rite of passage into the holding masculine because if you haven't done that journey as a man you're gonna have inbuilt hate towards the feminine and the feminine won't show her the creating feminine won't show her life force to you she won't feel safe with you because and this is you know the 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 tragedy i see in a lot like men's and women's movement that like you know from the women's movement we always often feel this hate from men uh, and, and i'm not like oh men are idiots and they always hate women i'm not that's not at all what i'm talking about but it, there's, there's this deep sorrow of you guys projecting your mothers onto us um and there's a deep work to be done for men to be guided to the point of not doing that towards women 
um, so that we can meet and start collaborating. I would even Absolutely. add to that and argue that it's impossible to take a man into psychoanalysis without dealing with his mother issues first. It might take years. I can't go anywhere with any man of his sons unless you deal with the mother issue first. You cannot proceed as a man to do anything unless you deal with the hatred of your mother and get over it. That, that's, that's just what psychoanalysis has to deal with today. Yeah, and just to, to pick up on one thing you said, Alexander, about Buddhist meditation, the, the Zen traditions seem to be very masculine, but actually they are the holding types of meditation because they're empty meditations. Whereas in the Vajrayana, you have this these dense, visual, intense, like, like there's a, a dense array meditations, which are almost the exact opposite, which appear to be feminine, but are actually much more Vajra, which means which means the phallus, which means masculine. So there's a there's a sort of interesting um flip there. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah but they, really they, both, have, they, both, they both share origins. So Zen, Zen and Vajrayana both come out of Persia just as much as they come out of India. So I definitely see all these different traditions blend and the different forms of Zen and the different forms of Vajrayana, the different forms of Rastanism as well, of course. Yes. Yeah. And what Alex, Alex is describing is really intensely what you would call the red goddess practices in, in the Vajrayana, um, which which are, it's explicit, it's, it's, it's radical. Um, anyway. So is this, are we done now? Is it five o'clock? Is this, or is there, is there more, do we have more No, no, time? no. We have the floor for half an hour. If you we have the floor for to. half an hour. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so, so many fascinating going. questions. So why not take the floor? Are you, are Eberton finally okay with that too? Yeah, yeah, cool. that's great. Take, take the floor. So uh, why don't we all go through the questions and then jump onto one of the questions if you like it. Okay. So does anybody, does somebody want to just jump in or put your hand up? Because I haven't been following the, the chat so much. Um, maybe I, I have Joanna's question jumping out at me uh, about the current of power that, that our lives and sexuality. Um, Joanna, do you want to do you want to jump in here and and um, sort of articulate some of the things that that you've been talking about in the chat? Uh, it wasn't more of a question. It was just a a comment on some of what Fanny was sharing. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really have much to add other than just I'm grateful to be part of this group. Such stimulating conversation here happening in so many directions. And um, yeah, I don't have a question at the moment. Mm -hmm. So why don't somebody put up, if people have a question. Can, can I be so greedy to ask Fanny a question here? God, I think it rhymes with what mm -hmm. Joanna just said. I am thrilled to hear that a woman tantra goes before a sutra. How does this work? <laughs> yeah, me too. I've heard right, it before. That's, that's great. And I, I'd oh, love for Fanny or Joanna or some women to explore with us stupid men. What what would that mean if you take the gamble here and say that tantra is prior to sutra with female sexuality? What would that mean? Well, the, like so, it's. I mean, this is um, this is difficult to explain because, like, to me, it's such an embodied journey. So, like, putting words on it becomes difficult. But I'll do my best. Um, uh, and we're so steeped in the sutra before tantra, like you know everything we talk about leadership and development. So it really, like, really bends your brain thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I'll just try to say kind of what comes up. It's it's something about. Um, if you look at male sexuality, the tantric practices of men, it's a lot about, you know, controlling your sexuality, holding it back, not becoming like over. But for women, it's more about awakening it, like uh, coming in contact with it rather than it being shut down. So it's almost like that 
um, yeah, that women women need to awaken their life force first and then learn how to use it. And if you go into go into how to use it and control it and tame it and uh, and you know to be in service of the world and how are you going to use this life force? Then you just kill it. It's not there. So I had this huge shift in my own life. I you know I was this uh, idealistic trying to save the world as as you know a lot of people are, and I just had the shift and had to go for you know had years of completely de like dewashing from that and going into like what feels good for me, what feels pleasurable for me and allowing myself to act on my pleasures and what I'm longing for and not trying to take care of other people and not trying to serve but actually do what is what is coming through me uh, and that is a deep surrender and a deep practice and if you go into the sutric if you, you know that Jordan Peterson would never work for women you know like get up get your bed in order da, 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 because that completely shuts down the the female nervous system and um uh yeah, that, that's, does that uh, make any sense or what, was that an answer to your question? Something comes up for me here and, and this is like in the Vajrayana practice, you, t you start with the, the end, right? You start at the end, you start at Tantra and, and, and Dzogchen and then if you can't do that, you move down towards more, let's say, practical embodied practices. So you do everything inside out. So that's that's an interesting kind of connection to, yeah. what, to what you're saying. And from a feminine perspective, it's not inside out. Right, it's nice. There you go. Yeah, and also the feminine. The feminine is symbolized by fire, by 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 uh, by the solar. Actually, usually in the in the uh, traditional imagery, the the solar is masculine. It's activity, but actually in, in the tantra, the the feminine is solar, and the masculine is lunar because the lunar is the reflective, you know, the reflective intellectual capacity, the capacity to reflect. So it makes total sense that women are already in the tantra, right? And that they would move towards, you know, moving into the masculine would be into the sutra. That's that's beautiful. That's that's perfect for me. Yeah, I, I just want to add that working as a tantra teacher, it's in the tantric realm where female sexuality just explodes. It just explodes, you know, you're, wow, a fucking volcano. Yeah. And, and then finally men get what female sexuality is and they can then start learning how they should relate to it. And that's exactly why I love to be in the Tantra realm in that sense. Maybe it's just that we should have much more of that in general, even in the Sutra. I don't know, you know, the division between Tantra Sutras really, Sutras, what you can do, should do in public and Tantra is what you must do behind closed doors. But, you know, as things are right now, maybe it's just more comfortable and fine for women to operate in the Tantra realm and explore the sexuality. And there'll be a lot more of it. I certainly see a lot more of it coming. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and I just I, I'm just starting to wonder if it's just deeply the the natural path for a woman to start there, uh, and uh, um, yeah, yeah, because in the tantric you do intention, yep. you do ceremony, and you do integration. So you exactly imagine an end when you do intention. You know it's not going to be that way, but you imagine an end. So you have a safe container where you can arrive. So if anything goes wrong or you know whatever happens during ceremony, you can arrive at the end you planned. That's exactly what the intention is so important. And then the, then the ceremony happens and probably things go off in a totally different direction you planned. Hopefully you're surprised, pleasantly surprised as well. And then you arrive in a place we have to integrate afterwards. In, in that sense, Tantra is sex. Tantra is it's psychoanalysis, same way, three steps. And the same thing goes for a psychedelic experience, for example, which I would call the three tantras in Western culture today. Oh. Yeah. Andrew had some interesting comments here. If Andrew is around, 
So Brooke, are you around on comments on women and the cyclical and men and hierarchy? I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Is Andrew around? Andrew Suberg. Suberg. He does, oh yeah, no. yeah. Sorry, I didn't. I, I had to plug in a headset here. Um, so I was really interested in in everything that uh, uh, Fanny was saying. I've been uh, doing a lot of research and in, in writing on, if not that specific topic, then uh, something that's directly adjacent to it. And so when I, as a man, has started studying this stuff, I thought the feminine was chaos, you know. And that was my sort of entry point. And like, as I uh, kept reading and thinking, I'm like, no, it's not, it's not chaos at all. It's a different sort of order. Whereas for the masculine order is hierarchy, it's category, it's linear. And for, for uh, the feminine order is, is cyclical order is it's, it's temporal. And so at least that, that's uh, the way I've come to understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like it's like the feminine is the true order, and that's I mean that's what you spoke speak about Alexander, like the mythos that that that's the only true order. Actually, that's only the realness. That's that's how the world works. That that's how it, how it is. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's uh, it's much more complex than a simple hierarchy. Uh, which it's you know the masculine is like a simplification of reality to be able to build structures and to be able to build something uh, around it. Uh, and yeah, and, and when it's a virtuous cycle, the structure that is built is in service of this feminine, um, of this feminine knowing. And I would say also that this, when it becomes so like, even when we're having this conversation, everything we say will even be either be said with a feminine lens or a masculine lens. Uh, and this way of saying that the, the masculine is order and the feminine is chaos is a very masculine lens because it's 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 almost it's also the Madonna whore thing, you know, like either the holding feminine is Madonna and the virgin and the creating feminine is the whore, but like from a woman, like that does not make sense. Like as, as I said, like for the you can't separate the holding feminine and the creating feminine for a woman. It's like I access my holding feminine when I'm in my creating feminine. It's the holding feminine that then allows me to go back down into the cycle. Like it's it's just a completely different way of of uh, speaking about the world and seeing the world. What's interesting is that women are far more ordered than men. Actually, this is um, the paradox. Like you know, like actually, women have access to more of the order. Yeah, like that's why everything becomes so interesting. And I think I think the Madonna who are here is so interesting because it's clearly a male uh, prejudice and nothing else. Boring for women like hell, but why is it? It's, it's if man thinks his logos and pathos and the conflict between the two, he imagines that a woman must be logos and pathos. That's exactly why women are so tired of it because a woman of logos is the Madonna and a woman of pathos is the whore. And yeah. it, women are both because they're mythos. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> the point. Their autology proves it. And I think also the, the chaos goddess, if you understand human beings as nomadological, we're nomadic, we move, we move all the time. You must have a mythos where you say the forefathers and the foremothers have gone ahead of us. They're ahead of us. And then, then, then the priest, the chief, lead us into the promised land or into the future or where we're going to go next. And then the last person out is the matriarch. And basically what you teach everybody in the mythos at night is that tomorrow morning, we got to get going again. We've got to get up and going. And if you're behind the matriarch, there's chaos. That's exactly why we perceive chaos as a goddess 
in all religions comes back chaos god it's not that women are chaotic no the matriarch is the big greatest order of all it's just that behind her is something you don't want to be part of you don't want to be left behind and being left behind both both, both men and women mimetic brain is completely focused on not being left behind because if you're left behind you're consumed by chaos that's where the myth comes that we associate chaos with the feminine we basically associate with the matriarch and that's where it should be located, but it's nothing to do with what a woman is. And, and this notion, again, also of being left behind is in like the masculine structure of the bigger tribe within a feminine local tantric space, being left behind is going into the void and finding the life force. So that's what, you know, like it's the cyclical again, uh, but yeah. Um, but also I, I love this, um, this with this Madonna whore, like that men, Put onto it. And that's, you know, like with leadership, I'm taking in bringing in sexual energy into female leadership. And that's like explosive because we have the Madonna whore. And for men, it's like, oh, you're bringing in sex into the business world. Like, no, I'm not bringing in sex into the business world because for from a female perspective, from a feminine perspective, sexual energy is not sex. It's just part, it's the beginning of the cycle. Like, and if we don't have that, we won't be able to be in our power, but it's just such an explosive. And again, like, I know it can't be mainstream, stream and the leadership structures can't be built on that notion but we need to create pockets where women female leaders can explore this or we won't be able to build the, the build something good together just one comment i want to bring in alex uh, as well jim has also raised her hand but oh, somebody's raised their hand okay go ahead jane now I'll, I'll i'll comment after oh hello um i'm actually just in bed right now i saw alex ebert's story and ended up on this conversation so um yeah wasn't prepared for it but just wanted to say thank you so much for everyone's perspectives and this is really interesting conversation happening um when you were just talking it was reminding me something of a friend of mine Ruben always talks about where he uh brings it to like an elemental level and talks about how when two elements come together like for example even with um smudge like if you have earth and say sage and you light that with fire the third element created from that is is the third thing and he often talks about this idea of like when we come together um with another person like what is the third element that's being created between the two energies coming together so i've just been sort of thinking about that in terms of masculine and feminine a lot lately and have been actually finding little infinity symbols everywhere um, lately. And I've been thinking like, oh, why do I keep seeing this everywhere? And then um, Fanny, when you were presenting, I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is great um, to tune into that. So yeah, just wondering if anyone could speak to that in terms of um, maybe more of the transitional moments that um, I know you had mentioned it before about part of a man's transition into not hating the mother comes from like kind of going through that wound to relate in a healthier way if I'm perceiving that right so could we talk a little bit more about what those transitional moments look like so that when masculine and feminine energies do come together that the third element that's created perhaps is something that is life-giving rather than destructive or maybe it needs to be destructive I'm not sure but this is just what's circling around in my head right now I can answer that if you like. Uh, the, in psychoanalysis, you always work with the triad. Again, here's what's different from psychology. 
Psychology doesn't work with sort of mental images the same way you do in psychoanalysis. The third is always present. There's always a third present in everything you do as a couple or with a friend or whatever. There's always a third present. If I'm hanging out with my best friend, Victor, then certainly uh, women are the third. We go out at night, we go to a bar or whatever. It's always the third element to everything. That's why we go and see a priest. We don't marry each other when we get married. Man and woman don't marry each other. They go to see a priest or a priestess. You're going to see a third person that represents the external world, if you use Ebert's vocabulary. Uh, and the relationship between the two does not make sense unless there's a third part there. And then, of course, this leads on to reproduction, having children. So I'd say the third is always there. And, and human beings, like with narratology, for example, and with our brains being three different brains competing with each other, we are triads constantly. We're not a duo. Uh, in, in Taoism, the way you solve this problem in contemporary diocese is by having the yin and the yang. You say, no, we split the yang between the yang and the yang. And it just turns out it's easier to split the masculine side too, because men are a struggle between logos and pathos, and then let the women represent wholeness. Because at the end of the day, we're both wholeness human beings, and we also have to be different. And it's usually easier to put the difference on the masculine side, just because men operate that way. Uh, but that's my experience of it. So I'm all for thinking triads is the intelligent way to think relationships in general, always. Yeah, I would just add, there's also the, the there's that 100%. There's also the sublation aspect, uh, which would be rarer and probably not always present, but uh, an event of some kind in which the third is the man woman or the woman or whatever whatever that thing is that uh, that annihilates both man and woman and uh, preserves them together as man and woman in that moment it doesn't last uh, it's not something that lasts but there can be a third that is created out of two and that's the whole notion of the dialectic really it's not a synthesis of oh i'm a man and a woman it's a woman blah you've been momentarily destroyed to come together to momentarily create a third and um and that's a beautiful thing you know when you guys were talking before i was thinking about how this idea of the linear path being very masculine it's like the story of like the garden of eden is you leave the garden of eden and then and then um and then you move into the world and then there's children and work and you know the whole civilization develops from there um uh, but what fanny said made me think that maybe the the the, the garden of the woman never leaves the garden of eden in that sense right in the same sense that the man does and that that is a male myth completely um uh that that just blows my mind because because then what would the female myth of that 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 be and that would have to be the tantric we have to go to the tantric after we've gone through the whole 2000 years of you know uh western uh, you know monotheism or or at least uh, at least abrahamic religion so well, the, to begin with, the Garden of Eden is a disaster. The Abrahamic religions and Buddhism and Zoroastrianism is the greatest victory ever. So it depends on how you look at it. But I, I, I agree that in the sense, woman is in nature all the time. And when we apply culture, we, we assume that men represent culture. The reason for that is simply that women are in control of the primary function, which is the reproduction. It is the female body that gives birth to babies. And the way I phrase that philosophically, but, you know, it's a, it's a bit jokey, but it's blatantly true is that men envy women for giving birth to children and because men envy women for giving birth to children men invent technology now let's see historically though if 
eventually, you know, children don't get better. We give birth to the same babies all the time. But technology is racing ahead. So let's see where the relationship between the technology and the child ends up eventually. It's, it's an open race. It could go, 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 can also become disastrous, obviously. But men are creating technology as a response, I think, fundamentally, because women are already in the reproduction, which is why with the terms process and event, women are process. Women secure the process's foundation there. That creates the possibility for men to be phallic in the sense that it creates the possibility for men to create an event that changes history forever. And that's a men dream about, for good or bad. As we know from civilization, we have to constantly relearn and rethink what civilization is and in what ways it's harmful and in what ways it's constructive. Yeah, men so recklessly burst out of the, the, the you know, the Garden of Eden and start fucking things up. And then there has to be a repair and a reconciliation. And a, this is like, hey, it was Eve who took the fruit and ate it, you know, and convinced the guy, you know, women love it. Yeah, so they, that's true. Why don't you become well. a fucking knowledgeable man, a real man? Why don't you eat the damn fruit and learn shit? Stop being a boy. You know, that's the way I do Garden of Eden, but I'm a Zoroastrian. Martin had a really good question about fathers and mothers that I think could tie into this, maybe ties into all as well. I don't know, about toxic masculinity and toxic femininity. We hear a lot about those words. Does Martin want to address the question here? Is he around? Mm, yeah, sure. Uh, my point of view is that uh, uh, mothers are teaching the sons on toxic masculinity and fathers are teaching the sons on to toxic uh, femininity. It's going vice versa, because if we saw it in Freudian terms of, about the failure of the uh, achieving the Oedipal complex or, and the constant fear of castration, then we are talking about a simple object uh, projection. I hate my father, but my father is with, with this woman. So I must therefore hate woman in general. That's something that happens unconsciously in the in the developing brain. That's that's how I see it. Maybe it's a, just a walk theory. Okay, so the psycholytic answer to this is that you're supposed to hate your mother's tit. You're not supposed to hate her. This is Yulia Kristeva, foundational feminine female psychoanalysis. The Power Horse in the 1980s, remarkable book. Well, Kristeva says that the guys like Freud and Lacan, these guys, they don't get that the woman cannot drop her baby ever. The child has to get away from the mother. And the way that happens with the Oedipal complex works is that the, the child learns how to hate, objectify the tit, what we call the mamilla. So it's like, there's a certain moment when the child goes, I will never ever suck the damn tit again because it's so disgraceful. I will not. And this is called the father intrusion because then there's a negation going on, which is that the masculine grown-up adult body represents something different from mother. So to get away from mother, the father intrusion has to happen, which is the Oedipal complex or the electric complex in girls, same thing. And that, that, that creates a desire to one day have the fathers, if you're a boy or a lesbian, or to want to be penetrated by the phallus if you're a gay guy or a woman, right? So this, this is what happens at one year of age. It's a phallic intrusion. And it makes sense because the phallic intrusion should not be seen as men are superior to women at all. No, it's women first, but it's a negation to the female body. This enables the child to move away from the female body, from the mother, to then realize that mother 
can be both an objectification, which is the mamela, and an entire woman and mother who you can love to bits the rest of your life because she will now let you go. Or she's been forced to let you go because you're forced away, away from her. So this is what the children have to do. So the children are much more into the behaviors of their parents to create the Oedipus or the electroconflicts. They're not really interested in what they're being taught by their parents. But when you do psychoanalysis, you go through what you were taught as a kid. And when you then discover that your father taught you how to hate women or your mother taught you how to hate men, then you need to eliminate that so you don't repeat the same hatred. And that's what you try to do with psychoanalysis. You just go to that place and, okay, so my parents did this. They didn't know better. I can forgive them because their parents did the same thing and they didn't know better. I can forgive them. And I'm now lucky enough sitting in analysis realizing that I could repeat the same mistake, which I then won't, which is the whole point with enlightenment. The point with enlightenment is to realize that I will either repeat the mistakes of the past or because I've now seen the mistakes of the past, I could just try to do it differently. And that's the point. You're not supposed to love, or you're not supposed to hate the opposite gender or anything like that at all. But you're supposed to deal with where the hatred comes from and then get rid of it. Mm, great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, can I add a little bit? Sorry. Um, uh, I was more talking about uh, not really teaching you, like in, in, in general terms, like uh, more like doing the opposite, feeling the opposite of what are you being taught. For example, the mother is teaching you to love her, to never let her go and so on and so on and that way in the boy's head it creates the the image of hating the opposite of doing the opposite because as we know kids and little children of course they they think in in dichotomies in one uh, zeros and ones so if i love this then i have i have to hate that and that 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 was uh, what i was talking about and thank you for your answer. It was really on point. And oh, totally agree. Totally agree. That's exactly why you then need the teenage rebellion eventually. And that's why the teenage rebellion is called the rebellion against the phallus. You then go against your parents entirely. And what you have to do is to go against them, establishing yourself individuation, as I prefer to call it, as a separate person from your parents entirely. So you move out. You go out of the world, do your own thing. But that process in contemporary society fails because you do the rebellion against the parents, but you don't realize that by making your parents human at the end of it, instead of gods, you turn them into humans, you must also do the same thing to yourself. That's why when we don't have a rite of passage, we don't have a contemporary culture, we fail here, we create narcissists. So we create children that realize that their parents are human, but the children still think they are divine which is essentially what narcissism is. And the mass narcissism we're seeing in contemporary society is an intense lack of proper rites of passages where the older generation, the grandmothers and the grandfathers step in and smack you in the face and say, you're nothing without us. Yes, you stood up against your parents. You're now your own individual in the tribe. You're now grown up, but you're nothing without us in our wisdom. And that I think is a theme that recurs throughout this weekend is that where did that older generation step into the picture to relieve children from the narcissism that they suffer from today? Okay, we have a couple minutes left. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. Once again, I apologize for my tardiness um, and for fucking up, but but I I absolutely love this. Um, oh well, you know. Uh, anyway, I, I thought maybe in the last three minutes we could get just some summary, final, you know, final, let's say summation. 
um, you know, what's what what we got from this and where we're going next. Um, maybe starting with Alex, who began the presentations. Let's finish off with Alex. I think Fran and I are fine. I really want to hear Alex's take on awe after all of this. <laughs> Is there a gendered <laughs> version of it? Are different versions of awe between generations or where we at with awe? Is it universal? Okay. I mean, this is my opinion is that uh, is both, I think, um, is that, of course, men and women are going to have different interpretations of awe, however, and they're going to be able to arrive at awe differently. Men probably through acquisition, more through drive, and women probably more through equilibration. Uh, uh, but, and maybe, and maybe, yeah, equalization, maybe some other aspects I'm working with, but my opinion, and I don't see any way around this, and I love this aspect of it, um, is that the indeterminacy is indeterminacy, and that the moment of awe, not the experience of it, or the reflection of it, or the interpretation of it, or the meaning of it, but the moment of it, is isomorphic to any other indeterminacy, and that intercategorical inter animals are intercategorical animals for that moment. Afterwards, yes, all of the rubric that, you know, then distills that would be totally affected by sex and gender. But my opinion is that uh, that the moment of awe is uh, non-binary, if you will, or uh, in indeterminate, and therefore, you know, extrapolate what you will from that. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in exploring that more and... Uh, and thinking on it more, you know, because I think it's very interesting that the entirety of drive might be a primarily male, uh, you know, uh, reality and uh, and theory. And as Andrew said that, you know, this whole, a lot of our myth uh, may be really skewed toward the male perspective in a way that could be really um, beautiful to uh, excavate. Yeah, as Tractum would always say to me that that or that we never left the Garden of Eden. That that's like, that never happened, right? <laughs> so, so that's the non-dual experience or something, right? When the the, the masculine and feminine come together and I mean, men definitely left. Men are clamoring to leave constantly. I mean, it's it's yeah. Really a, they're uh, trying to go to Mars and <laughs> all that shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's a, but anyway, yeah. That's that's my answer to that, and I've been really enjoying this. You know. I have hesitancy around, you know, uh, genderizing everything. I'm also, uh, but but it was a good conversation for me in that I was able to find ingresses uh, to my own relation to it. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a fallacy in, in, in over relying on sort of quantum explanations and entanglement and sort of non-binary as some sort of more fundamental uh, reality that you prescribe uh, too much weight to, um, you know, because the superficial is the language of the profound is what I would say. And um, you can't simply discard the superficial as superficial. Uh, the, the superstructure informs the structure and vice versa. And um, yeah, so it's just a, it, it's actually a really cool talk because I, pre I presented some more fundamental stuff and we went, more topical and they really have a symbiotic relationship and influence one another in interesting ways. So it was cool. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks so much, everybody. That was, that was really uh, sort of a kind of conversation that I feel is like the endless conversation. Like we could pick up at any one of these points and expand for, for hours, but uh, thank you so much.
everybody and and uh, and enjoy the conference, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Big love to you all.